0: The conservative conscience and welcome back to the conservative conscience here on the Westwood one podcast network over at CRTV. And it is Monday, March 19th. And we're going to kick off a very big week here, an enormous amount of material to cover both on the show today and also simply at our website. We just have a lot of content. Click on my name, go back and see the chronology of our articles and I can't even scrape the surface just with the articles, even though we have so much content, because you know we had two guests on last week, so we took up some time with that, and I'm certainly glad we did. Got a lot of good feedback from that. We had Chris McDaniel on. We had my buddy Jim Butler on, representative from the Ohio legislature, to discuss healthcare, as well as the supposed opioid crisis, which is very important, the lies being told about the origin of it and the cause of it and the nature of it and what we should do about it because you can't come up with a solution if you don't define what the it is and what actually is the problem and what caused it and why the timing in particular. So we're going to hopefully get that at the end of today's show. But for now, I want you guys to come away from this show understanding why even though it's March 19th, 2018 – It feels more like Thanksgiving or Christmas time, the end of the year. See, this is going to be the week that determines the November elections. The year is over for Republicans. They're running out the time and holding the ball on their possession of the ball. They're running out the clock while they're behind. (laughs) They're behind in the elections and they're running out the clock and refusing to do anything with it. Let me read to you to kind of set the table here. As we talk about the omnibus bill this week and some other things going on in the mix of the courts destroying our country and Congress doing nothing about it, the president not demanding Congress do anything about it. This is a, this is an article from Axios this morning. According to three sources with direct knowledge, House Republicans have scheduled a conference meeting tomorrow at 5.45 p.m. That's actually in a couple hours where they will share the details of the spending bill with members. They expect to post the bill text tomorrow night after the meeting. Leadership sources tell me that they think this spending bill will be the last major law passed this year. The rest of the congressional calendar calendar will mostly be given over to confirmation of Trump's nominees. So we're in March of what could be Republicans' final year with full control. And it definitely will be their final year, if they do nothing and they plan on doing nothing. Plan on doing nothing. Put it this way. I don't know if you've ever pictured the scenario like this, but this is essentially Barack Obama's third term because legislatively, it's a status quo. They will not pass any good bill aside from the tax cuts. That's the only thing. Nothing else. They will not pass anything. They're not even doing budget reconciliation this year, which was the one avenue to get around the filibuster and pass something good remember that's how they passed the tax cuts so they have the opportunity to do another one in 2018 and they're not going to do it because they don't want to do anything nor do they want to get around the filibuster anyway because as we've noted many many times they could actually force a talking filibuster and definitely force a vote with 51 votes on a number of issues even if democrats are willing to chew up the clock But then it gets worse than that. You have budget bills, the so-called must-pass bills. Okay, so you're not going to initiate a new random good bill out of left field, but what about the so-called must-pass bills? Well, Daniel, we don't have 60 votes. Well, Democrats don't have 60 votes either. They don't have the House. They don't have the White House. And yet, so far there's been three major budget bills, and every one of them, has codified Democrat spending priorities and Democrat policy priorities without enacting any of Trump's campaign priorities. And in addition, in the last budget bill, they threw in an automatic increase of the debt ceiling, which would have been a standalone separate point of leverage to use. But that's thrown in the garbage. So we stand today looking towards the end of the week where Congress is going to pass the final budget bill, the omnibus. And it's not even under discussion to pass our priorities, to not fund sanctuary cities, to defund Planned Parenthood, to defund the outcome of these court cases, if not downright take power away from the courts. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, that's kind of funny to stick legislative items in a budget bill. It's funny because they have no problem discussing sticking in an insurance bailout. Possibly the internet sales tax, we'll find out in a couple hours if that's in there. And possibly gun control. And either way, it's under discussion. Putting good things in there is not even under discussion. So, you know, they they could prohibit funding for the issuance of DACA to get around the courts. They could prohibit funding for the issuance of visas from the countries that Trump put on his so-called travel ban. That to this day, the courts have uh, mandated that, that it continue. And again, you know, we talk about the courts a lot, and we're going to talk more today about them. But the truth be told, at some point, it's not the court's fault. It's the other two branches for listening to them. You know, if I walk over to a professional boxer and I say, if you don't give me your money, I'm going to punch you in the face and the guy goes and gives me his money, it's his fault, okay? You know, that's the thing. The other two branches have so much more power than the courts. So at some point, it just malfeasance. But anyway, right now, here's what's clear. And again, by the time you hear this, the details of the omnibus might come out. We're certainly going to chronicle it tomorrow. But it's clear that they are but Busting the budget caps that, that they already put into place last time. Even though Trump's own OMB director put out a memo saying, look, just because you passed the law busting the budget caps, it doesn't mean you have to actually appropriate the money in the spending bill and omnibus later later in the month, which is now. Um, and they recommended only spending ten billion of the sixty three billion in non defense spending. In, uh, you know, increased spending beyond the budget caps. But no. That will be in there. As far as insurance bailout, the reinsurance program is for sure in there, even though the insurance company has never paid back the money they owed on the previous one. And the Republican leadership called it the great Obama Obamacare heist, and now they're passing a new one of their own. The only question is, are they going to have the so-called CSR payments, the cost-sharing payments, and the um, stability <laughs> payments? the stability to stabilize their monopoly. So that's for sure in there. The question is, are they going to have the internet sales tax? Are they going to have gun control? Then you have amnesty. So God forbid, should they ever discuss sanctuary cities, which by the way, more and more I'm convinced that sanctuary cities are fundamentally the issue of our time because they are preventing us from redressing all of our problems. They're becoming magnets of refuge for illegals to come here, get, get driver's licenses, sign up to vote because it's motor voter seamless flow into voter registration. And, you know, all you have to do is sign an affidavit. You know, you write on the um, voter form that you're a citizen, but you don't have to show proof of it. Gee, we have illegal immigrants that are illegal to begin with, but somehow they're going to tell the truth on that. And by the way, 1.2 million identity thefts. Um, there's, there was an article I'm actually looking at now I, I didn't plan on talking about this but the IRS found 1.2 million cases of identity theft by illegal immigrants but don't worry don't worry these dudes are definitely going to go and uh, be um, be honest about their v- voter registration and I'll, I'll, we'll get to the driver's licenses in a minute but sanctuary cities are also as we noted we have two articles now On my piece uh, on Friday, we'll link to in show notes, about the true cause of the so-called opioid crisis, which is not fundamentally a prescription crisis, certainly not beyond what it has been for the last 20 years. What has gone on, the increase in fatalities of 400%, 600%, you name it, um, that, that was all... That all began in 2013, 2014, all because of open borders. And the sanctuary cities are preventing us from redressing it. Okay, so that's that's that little piece there. And yet, the only question is how much amnesty they're going to put in the bill. Democrats, ironically, are, start- are starting to walk away from it because they realize they're going to win now anyway, so why risk angering voters over something that, unlike Republicans, Democrats know is very unpopular? So they're willing to walk away now because, guess what, we have judicial amnesty anyway, where the courts sacked the rule of law and said you have to continue DACA. So they're getting it anyway. And in terms of a long-term solution, they figure, well, they'll just come back with more power after November and they'll get it then, since you already have the patch from the courts. But yet Trump is actually the one trying to push amnesty because he badly wants a monument to his presidency of the border wall, which I'm all for. But more and more, I'm convinced that interior enforcement in sanctuary cities is now the bigger problem. Before Obama, I would have said the wall is the most important thing. But now you gotta address what's already here. It's a huge problem. And the drug crisis caused by the sanctuary cities, fueled by it, and preventing us from from getting all the top-level drug runners out of this country. No. Sanctuary cities will not be in there. The only question is whether we're gonna have amnesty. Why? Because Trump feels the only way to get a border wall is by doing amnesty. Here's where he's wrong. There's something called a presidential veto. I know it's a very arcane term and a novel idea, but you know, for most of us we thought it was political science 101. American government 101, American Constitution 101, there's something called a presidential veto. And today I have an article out noting that it's time for the president to make his veto pen great again, or risk being a complete lame duck. This is his last his last um really leverage or, or, or any hope, any avenue to enact Any legislation. And the president's like, look, Congress makes the laws, nothing I can do. He seems to get the impression that any piece of crap handed to him by Congress, he must sign irrespective of whether it's good for the country, irrespective of whether it's constitutional, irrespective of whether it does anything to address the key problems we have in this country, which a budget bill is supposed to do. A budget bill is supposed to be a reflection of your priorities, of your administration. Yes, I know, constitutionally speaking, Congress writes the budget, but a veto is not just some sort of a rubber stamp, or, I mean, signing a bill is not a rubber stamp. That was a huge check on legislative power given to the president. Isn't it ironic, we're talking about the courts in part today, that we have a judicial veto on everything. You know, the judiciary just vetoes any legislation passed by Congress or a state. Now even the lower courts could do that. Yet somehow, we don't really have a presidential veto anymore. Recent years, presidents really haven't been using it much. And... You know, just because Trump's own party controls Congress, but they don't. The Democrats control it, or Republicans really are Democrats. But either way, Trump has a veto pen. And a veto pen easily leverages against what they want to do. Because if you make it clear, look, you could go through all that debate. You could write all the bills. You could spend, you know, plot late at night and spend all your time uh, concocting 2,000-page bills. But you know what? It's not going to get the light of day on my desk. I'm going to veto it. Done. You know, what are you going to do about it? I mean, if you think about it, the veto is a huge juggernaut. It's, it's the most underappreciated aspect of American government. It's amazing how we, we look to every other tool to be a check on government that doesn't exist. You know, such as a fourth branch or a judicial veto, but then the leverage and the checks and balances that are blatantly written to the Constitution, we overlook. You know, Everyone feels, well, Daniel, we need the courts to call the balls and strikes on the Constitution to put a check on the legislature. They're forgetting there's a middle ground. The president already has that check. There's a, an executive veto. There is no judicial veto. You know what's kind of interesting? James Madison originally had an idea of a council of revision where Congress would pass laws and then you'd have a council of revision that gets together and decides whether it's constitutional or not or whether it needs to be revised. Now, you know, there were different plans in place what that would look like. The basic plan would be it was a council, the mixture of a president and some and some members, I believe it was some, not all members of the Supreme Court. And then maybe some other people, too, might have been in informal proposals, but I don't think it was in Madison's proposal. Um, But, you know, that was rejected. But the, the understanding was, keep in mind, that that was in lieu of a veto. That was going to be the veto. So it's not like you have two bites at the apple that you have right now. Congress signs into law, the president decides to sign it or could veto it, and then the courts get to veto it. No, that was going to be instead of a presidential veto. That was going to be the check on the legislature. But they didn't adopt that because they wanted to keep the um, the judiciary completely separate and for good reason. So they gave the president this veto. And by the way, it's just important when you talk about this council of revision to realize the absurdity of the current false unconstitutional system of judicial supremacy. Because even under the Council of Revision, which was ultimately rejected, you still had some elected representation in that council, a.k.a. the president. Whereas now it's completely in the hands of the unelected courts. You know, it's pretty amazing that, well, a couple things, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here and moving away from my main point, but at any time I get to bash judicial supremacy and prove philosophically from our history how it's wrong, I'll do so. And one of the things you find is that, you know, something passes Congress, the president vetoes, there is an option of, an, of a veto override. It's very rare, it's very hard to achieve two-thirds of a uh, vote, but you could override it. Yet we're told now that if something passes... 100 to 0 in the Senate, 535 to 0 in the House, and is signed by the president, a simple district judge could come in and nullify it. (laughs) Think about that. The, 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 The founders were scared to give the power just to a president to have a categorical negative. Nonetheless, they gave him a pretty strong one. Subject to a two-thirds vote override, but it's very hard. But at least it does have an override. And yet they're telling us that a district judge could override even a unanimous vote of Congress and a signing affirmation from the president. And a district judge could just do it and there's, there's not a single darn thing you can do to override it. It's pretty amazing. Just if you think philosophically about that, how insane that is. It's, it's another one of the million philosophical proofs that judicial supremacy is just not true. It's not the system we adopted. Because getting back to our point here, I go through in this piece some of the history of the debate surrounding the veto. Mainly June 4th, 1787 is when the Constitutional Congress had the debate over the veto power. And, you know, a lot of – they were very – they, they – on the one hand, they wanted a check on the legislature, because they assumed that the legislature would have the most power, and it does. So they wanted a check, but then they were scared, like, man, you're leaving this all in the power of one man. Um, you know, so James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton were the big proponents of a strong presidential veto. But a lot of the members of the of the Constitutional Congress, they were pretty scared of this. The uh, the great Roger Sherman said enabling any one man to stop the will of the whole because it is it is crazy because no one man could be found so far above all the rest in wisdom. Benjamin Franklin noted from the history of governors because you know they already had these systems on a state level that governors basically used their veto power to extort. The state legislatures into doing whatever they want and saying, hey, well, if you don't pass what I want, I'm going to veto it. So you, know, you got to do what I want. So they recognized this was a very powerful tool. So then they began debating the concept of a veto override. OK, so we're going to give him a negative, but we're not going to do what they called an absolute negative. And they were trying to figure out where to set the threshold for the veto override. Would it be two-thirds or three-fourths? Originally, they passed a motion to make it three-fourths. So it would be really difficult. In other words, the president's power was going to be really supreme in the sense that he could veto anything, and you would need three-fourths majorities in both houses to override that veto. Ironically, the guy who did it was, um, what's his name, Hugh Williamson from North Carolina, but later on, he was convinced to take it back and, you know, support a motion to go go to, go back to two thirds, which is ultimately what we adopted. Elbridge Gary, Charles Pinckney, Roger Sherman, and ultimately Madison all supported that, and they set it at two thirds because they're like, wait a minute. I mean, if you have three quarters, that means just a one quarter faction in each house is enough to support the president, and they could run a rough shot over everyone. But nonetheless, even with two-thirds, that's a very high – that's a very tall order to muster two-thirds in each house to override a president. um, It has only happened 111 times in our history. I don't have the stats just available, but I know that's less than 5% of vetoes, maybe 3%. Very small percentage have been overridden, and that has only happened eight times since Reagan's tenure. It's very, very rare, remarkably rare, um, certainly on major issues. Sometimes they're on small bills, you know, within the weed. So president does something unpopular, but it's not such a big deal. So even his own party members will use that as an example to show independence, but it's, it's pretty rare. But anyway, the point is you read through the debate, and I, I offer some of it, but there's a lot more. They were very scared of it. And even James Wilson, who was a big proponent of the presidential veto, he said that it, would, it wouldn't it would be used that much because it would be more of a silent operation. Um, basically, because Congress would know that because such power existed, they're going to work with the president. Otherwise, they know they're wasting their time. And that brings me back to Trump. <laughs> this is a huge power he has. He could leverage it. There's something called a SAP, a Statement of Administration Policy, where you issue a warning. You say, this bill, I will only support a budget bill that contains these priorities on sanctuary cities, on Planned Parenthood, on spending levels. No insurance bailout unless you do this and this on healthcare. You lay out your priorities. You say, this is dead on arrival. I mean, this is what Obama did, and we were always told, oh, Daniel... And No, oh, look, you can't go up against a president and risk a government shutdown. The president always wins. Well, you got a pen, and you got a bully pulpit. It's time to dust off that veto pen. You know what's interesting? The word veto in Latin means, I forbid. It's time for the president to use that bully pulpit to threaten the use of that veto pen and announce that I forbid funding for a private organization under criminal investigation for harvesting baby organs. I forbid funding for the issuance of visas that bring in dangerous people to this country in order to get around that stupid court ruling. I forbid the funding of DACA work permits that the courts are mandating. I forbid the mortgaging of our future by spending up the wazoo, you will cut spending. That's the power of the veto. Our founders, they didn't—they didn't think their system was perfect. If you would have, you know, if you would awake them from their slumber two hundred years later and say, "Hey, guys, you know that there's been tyranny," and you wouldn't tell them why, they would think that the president wound up being too powerful that the power of the veto was too strong. They would never, ever suspect that the real tyranny would come from a judiciary that could somehow issue vetoes, a lower courts created by Congress could issue vetoes, and then a president wouldn't use his constitutional veto to leverage Congress to deal with it. And that we could be sitting here today Several weeks after Trump set a deadline to end the executive amnesty, and it's still in place, and we're still actively issuing driver's licenses and work permits and social security cards to people that have violated our sovereignty, that don't belong here, that pursuant to foundational longstanding immigration statutes must be deported. It's still going on because of the courts, and we're passing a budget bill, and the only question is how much amnesty we could put in there, not how much we could actually defend our own laws. Our founders never would have envisioned this. But this is the power of the veto pen. Trump has that. He never uses it. He never has vetoed anything. You know, a friend of mine in the administration who's a good guy, he said, you know, they tried to warrant, warn the president that just pick anything. Pick a random bill in your first month and veto it. Just, just to show your power. He hasn't vetoed a single bill yet. He hasn't even threatened a veto of these bills. He's going along with it. And that's my point. You don't have to beg Congress, all right, I'll give you whatever amnesty you want as long as you give me some funding for the wall. You're like, no. Here's what I'll negotiate with, but here are my red lines. And if you pass a budget bill that funds sanctuary cities but doesn't fund my wall, it's dead on arrival. I will never sign it. And in fact, I'll veto it. Not just a pocket veto, a veto du jour. <laughs> so that's the power the president has. And yet he won't use it. Maybe someone could send in my article. Maybe he doesn't understand its power. Maybe he thinks it's some sort of a suggestion or some sort of a rare, uh, you know, controversial tool. Isn't it amazing that all the checks and balances that aren't in the Constitution we put in there, but the ones that are in there are never used? So, you know, this is the deal. And speaking of the courts, we have more insanity, more insanity from the courts. So today, on Monday, the Supreme Court screwed us again. And as we've noted many times in the past, the Supreme Court isn't doing so much of the damage directly. It's the lower courts doing it. And then the lower courts, wink and nod, won't take up the appeal. In other words, allowing the bad, lawless lower court ruling to stand. In this case, the Supreme Court refused to hear the cries and pleas from Arizona asking for relief and an appeal from the Ninth Circuit that is forcing Arizona to issue driver's licenses to Obama's amnesty to legal aliens under the DACA program. You heard that correct. Imagine a court telling... Imagine a court giving standing to illegals who should never have standing in an Article III court to sue for benefits, to sue for driver's licenses, when under federal law they have to be here. Now, look at how corrupt the courts are. I mean, this is why the courts are so evil. What's a federal power they give to the states and what's a state power they give to the feds and then they contradict themselves in both places? So, if you remember in Arizona v. U.S., when Arizona wanted to enforce federal immigration law, just simply, you know, kind of just put state penalties and just work together with the feds. They said, you're preempted by federal law. I'm like, what do you mean? That that is the federal law. And yet now, when they just merely want to not give driver's licenses to illegal aliens, courts say, You're preempted by federal law. Well, but what do you mean they're illegal? No, we mean Obama's law, but Obama violated the law. Obama's preempted by immigration law. No, no, Obama's evidently not preempted by immigration law, but states following immigration are preempted by immigration law. Oh, and by the way, sanctuary cities, judges in San Francisco, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, New York, among other places, I think Miami as well, have ruled that sanctuary cities are just fine. And they, many times they prevented the feds from even uh, coming in and, and uh, honoring detainers for ICE. Think how perverse that is. Think about this. Think about this hypocrisy on states' rights in the courts. The state of Arizona is merely trying to do an inaction, right? They, they just don't want to issue driver's licenses to illegal aliens and yet a federal court could somehow tell a state that it must issue state executive power, they're putting a positive on their negative, issue driver's licenses to people that, pursuant to state and federal law, don't have a right to be there. And again, driver's licenses is a state function. Yet, somehow... Liberal states could get standing to sue the federal government to demand that they use their executive power to issue more visas to Somalis and Yemenis and Libyans and Iranians, and Iraqis, whoever else, because they want more immigration. Can you imagine that? How, how how perverted Sodom and Gomorrah that is, Sodom and Gomorrah jurisprudence, to say that a state could leverage the courts to get the feds to bring in more immigrants, something that's manifestly a federal, not a state power, yet a state is being forced to issue driver's licenses against their will, which is a state power in violation of federal law. You cannot get a more grotesque, backwards, inside-out, upside-down, evil Supreme Court and lower courts than this. So anyway, today the the Supreme Court told Arizona to get lost. They denied them CERT. That's not a denial. That's making a statement. When lower courts do something so radical and you let it stand, you're making a statement. And let me tell you something. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. Much worse than that. Remember last month, the Supreme Court denied DOJ's expedited appeal of Judge Alsup, the San Francisco District Judge, who mandated DACA as the law of the land, to say that it is unlawful of the president to follow immigration law. So, the DOJ went to the Supreme Court because they said, "Look, you know, why should we waste months going through the Ninth Circuit while, meanwhile, having to grant documents to legal aliens? Such a radical idea. You guys got to take this up." This this is a breach of all precedent. This is crazy. The Supreme Court can't have it both ways. If they're going to be supreme over the other branches of government, so certainly they have an obligation to be supreme over, the bra- over their own branch, the only area where they're legitimately supreme, over the lower courts. And especially in this case in particular, the Ninth Circuit and the district judge were already repudiated by the Supreme Court because they demanded that Trump not only continue DACA, but release all of his advice and texts and emails from advisors in the lead up to his decision on that. So the Supreme Court did already address that. So you see that the Ninth Circuit is so malfeasant, and you're making the government come back to them? But no, no, no. The Supreme Court said, what was the, term, what was the language they said? They said, it is assumed that the Court of Appeals will, pro- will proceed expeditiously. Okay, um, that, that, that's, that, that, that's nonsense. You know why? Because Arizona did go through the appeals process, and it wasn't very expeditious. Arizona passed their policy in 2012, and it has been locked up in the courts for five years. Five years they had to issue 28,000 illegal aliens driver's licenses when by the way 30 there's been 30,000 illegal alien DUIs has been have been let, on, let out onto the street Arizona in particular has had this problem a lot a lot of really tragic um deaths you know the, the one that comes to mind is um Sergeant Mendoza who died he was a cop there um and he died when an illegal alien was killed when an illegal alien was driving the wrong way on a, on a freeway in, in Arizona. But I mean, ima- imagine that. Imagine how disgusting that is. And then also, isn't it interesting how California is able to harbor illegals, sign up um, get, get roughly a million illegal aliens driver's licenses which means that a massive percentage of them are registered to vote. And then they affect the entire federal union. That's not your business. You're affecting our elections, our federal elections, not not just state elections when you have them vote. And yet you're telling Arizona that they must give driver's licenses to illegals when you know all well that because of motor voter laws, the state can't do anything to stop them. And, and, and here's the thing. There's another court case you might not be aware of where the, the Arizona said, look, okay, so we shouldn't have to give them driver's licenses. And then another thing, okay, if you're going to force us to give us give them driver's licenses, could we at least create a firewall so they don't illegally vote and, and hurt us, hurt the entire country? Stolen sovereignty, disenfranchising the citizen? But no. No, they weren't allowed to. So they wanted to go and just require that on the voting form, you have to show your birth birth certificate. You know, just very, very simple. Show the birth certificate right now and then we know if you're here if you're if you're a US citizen. I mean, sh- shouldn't we all agree that only US citizens could vote? Did that become a right-wing issue now? But anyway, the Ninth Circuit said no, you can't do that. And guess what? The Supreme Court would not grant the appeal. So screw you. You got you have to give them uh, driver's licenses, there's no way you could block them from voting. This is the country we're living in. We have a government shut down every day. Our system of governance is shut down. Our sovereignty is shut down. It's a disgrace. But that that's what the courts are doing. No one's going to talk about this case. And by the way, Trump's Department of Justice, the, the litigation started under Obama, but his DOG continued... Siding against Arizona. And and, side, and uh, they filed a brief with the court telling them not to grant the appeal. Can you imagine that? I, I just don't get it. But anyway, the, the, this is the world we live in now. I finally wanted to get to um, the whole issue with opioids and the opioid crisis, which is really an illegal heroin and fentanyl crisis. There's this big lie, and we don't have time. I want to do a full show on this, but just real briefly, there's this big dangerous lie being peddled that this is all prescription drug problem, evil doctors, evil pharmaceuticals, drugging everyone up, getting them addicted uncontrollably. Anyone who takes you know, OxyContin or Hydrocodone um, or other stuff, forms of morphine, they can't get off of it for the rest of their life, and then to the extent there's heroin and fentanyl, well, it's only because of the prescription drugs get them hooked on it, that most people who are on heroin and fentanyl, it's not a cultural problem, it's not the people that were doing drugs anyway, but now have a greater supply due to the illegal immigrants and the sanctuary cities and the open borders we had. It's due to the the doctors and the pharmaceuticals. So with this line, not only are they obfuscating what we really need to do, that it's really a heroin-fentanyl problem, it's really a border problem, and to the extent it's a healthcare problem, it's a Medicaid expansion problem, which we'll talk about at at a later date, and I'll have an article on this. But rather than talk about that, by doing this, they want to clamp down even more on prescriptions. Here's the reality. Prescriptions are down to 2002 levels. They've been going down the last eight years or seven years at least, precisely before and during the opioid crisis that started in 2013. Yes, we've had overdoses from prescriptions. Yes, but there was a basic baseline. How did things increase 400%, 600% in one year from 2013, 2014, 2015? I showed in my 2,200-word essay. I have a 1,500-word essay before that. I did it a couple of weeks ago, and I have about you know three, four more articles to come on this. Showing incontrovertibly, that was all the amalgamation of the open border policies. And I show in great detail from Intel reports, from Texas DPS reports, how the drug smuggling all occurred then. I don't mean the baseline smuggling that we've had for 70 years. I mean the extra level that has A, brought in the fentanyl, and B... I know a lot of it comes from China, but it's smuggled and distributed through the Mexican drug cartels. A lot of it does come from Mexico as well, but all the heroin comes from Mexico. But the reason why it's been so cheap is because of that abundance. Yet what they're doing now by blaming it on healthcare, you're going to go in the opposite direction. Not only are you going to hurt all the people that are suffering, that genuinely need it, when even under the most radical surveys, most people... Do not overdose. Most people do not become addicts. The doctor prescribes them properly, they use them properly, and that's it. Are there pill mill doctors that do things wrong? Yes, just like you have Enrons in the financial sector, and you go after them. There's bad doctors just like there's bad cops. But it doesn't mean that there's systemically a problem. That's what liberals do with every issue. But even if you say, and and I look, different friends of mine who work in the medical profession say different things, that we did too much, we were prescribing too much, that has been dramatically cut. So to cut it even more at this point, ironically, without dealing with the supply side of the illicit problem, which is responsible for 80 to 90% of the deaths in most states, you're just going to drive more people into the illicit stuff. And here again is another issue, just like guns, where Trump is really good on the one hand. He's talking about death penalty for the drug cartel peddlers, and also um, he is blaming it on illegal immigration. I'm I'm watching a speech right now as I'm broadcasting a speech in New Hampshire, which is one of the hardest-hit states. He is on message, but then he also talks about uh, clamping down on prescriptions. It's completely off message. It's completely wrong. I challenge anyone to answer the data I put out in my previous piece. Complete nonsense. Anyway, we've gone long here. I'm just about out of breath. But this week, just keep in mind, if this omnibus bill passes, it's over. By their own admission, this is the last thing they're doing. So there's no way to turn the tide. They're going to get crushed. And you know what? They deserve it. And you know what? Then Trump's going to be forced to use his veto pen... Otherwise, we're literally going to have Democrats not only in control of Congress come next year, but pretty much controlling the presidency. Thank you all for listening, folks. We'll have a lot more this week. Tune in to CRTV, CR.com. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.